pundits have been predicting the impending collapse of the Chinese banking system. The collapse has not happened, so what have these pundits been missing? I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Centre for Chinese Studies, and today's Harvard on China podcast talks to James Stent, a former director of two Chinese banks from 2003 to 2016. He's the author of the recently published China's Banking Transformation, The Untold Story, which dissects China's hybrid banking model. Stent demonstrates that the banking system can be used as a prism for understanding how the contemporary Chinese political economy works. I'm a, a banker by profession. I started my career with Citibank and then with Crocker Bank. I spent all my banking experience in Asia. And before I started my banking uh, career, I had learned Chinese language, uh, or I should say started learning it. It's a lifelong process. And uh, I worked as a senior manager of a Thai bank in Thailand for 18 years and then took early retirement in 2002 to fulfill a long-time aspiration to live and work in China. And after I got there, China was just beginning to develop new norms of corporate governance. And the China Minsheng Bank, uh, which had, was one of China's few private banks, had been started by a octogenarian named Jing Shuping. And Jing Shuping, as chairman of the bank, uh, realized that he needed to begin to have independent directors. So he went to the IFC, which knew me well, the International Finance Corporation, part of the World Bank Group, and they suggested my name. And I became an independent director of Minsheng Bank. And unfortunately, Jing Shuping, a man for whom I have the highest regard, he uh, became very ill and stepped down after the first term. So uh, I also stepped down and shortly thereafter, the China Everbright Bank uh, called me and said, we understand you stepped down. Would you consider joining our board as an independent director? And I served there as an independent director and chairman of the audit committee for two three-year terms, which is the legal maximum. And then after that, I was asked to be an external supervisor on the board of supervisors. Coming to China in the early 2000s, this is really the time when a lot of privatization is sweeping through the country. There's a shift towards finishing the final reforms that were started in the, not only 1978, but in the early 90s, in particular under Jiang Zemin. What are the kind of changes that you saw from when you started at the bank to when you left the bank? The changes that I saw uh, from 2003 to 2016 was a night and day transformation. And most of it actually occurred in the first 10 years of that period. After that, uh, the transformative change had been basically done. What was the transformative change all about? It was about changing Chinese banks from moribund relics of the old planned economy that loaned uh, by a government quota, uh, serving as more or less cashiers for the government, and it didn't work in the new market economy that you just described. They uh, realized that uh, this was a dead end for the banks. They also realized that Chinese banks, if they didn't have a robust banking system, they would be unable to fund and push forward the rest of their economic development program. So the need to create modern banks, and they took Western banks from various countries as their models, hence the invitation to me to join a board. And I saw virtually every part of the banks, of the two banks I was in, develop dramatically, starting with corporate governance at the board level. All the different things that boards of directors are supposed to do was 
put step by step in place. Internal audit, when I started uh, out as chairman of the Internal Audit Committee of Everbright Bank in 2006, the whole internal audit function was scarcely understood yet. And by four or five years later, uh, internal audit had become an important part of the governance of the bank. Internal controls were introduced. Uh, State-of-the-art IT was acquired. Uh, risk management, first with credit risk, then with operational risk, uh, then with uh, liquidity risk, market risk, etc. These were one by one uh, introduced into the bank with really extraordinary speed. It's still a work in progress. There are still problems. There are areas such as lending to the private sector that Chinese banks don't yet know how to do. But the difference between when I joined and where Chinese banks today uh, is simply a night and day transformation. And it's also a story that's not really known to the outside world very much. And hence, the title of my book is China's Banking Transformation, The Untold Story. So part of the book is you talk about not just this transformation of banks over the last 10 years, but you also describe banks as more of a hybrid model that makes it different from the West. Could you explain what you mean by that? To understand what I mean by that, I realized that in the book I wrote, uh, China's Banking Transformation, I had to describe how the hybrid banks of China today arise out of China's political economy, which in turn arises out of its culture. And indeed, this is true of banking systems any place in the world. I look at Chinese culture and describe it in very simplistic terms as being very group-oriented and also uh, a culture which looks to the state, looks to the rulers to provide for the, the wealth and power of both the nation and the people. Uh, and contrast is with the extreme outlier on the other side, which is the Anglo-American model, highly individualistic and where we try to constrain the state. And as Ronald Reagan said, this government is not the solution, it is the problem. In China, it's very, very different. So out of that arises a few key points. One is that China has a market socialist economy, whereas the U.S. has a market capitalist economy. Other countries such as Germany, Japan, the Scandinavian countries have something in between. And it makes a tremendous difference because the head of a Chinese bank not only has to perform well in a market sense, which means create shareholder value, uh, have robust profits and guard against risk, but he also has to contribute to the development of the nation, support the national economic development plans and social development plans. So there's dual role. And this is something that you find in the developmental state economies, uh, Meiji Japan, post-war Japan, Korea under Park Chung-hee, Taiwan, to a certain extent Singapore. So it's not unique to China. But it also has deep roots in Chinese history. If you look at the development of Chinese banking in the late Qing period and in the Republican period, uh, exactly the same dynamics uh, are there. Second point, uh, sounds obvious, but it's often overlooked, is the extraordinary role in China of the Communist Party. And within this, what particularly affects the uh, banks is not only the setting of national plans, strategy, through the party, but the role of the organization department. And the organization department uh, is the largest human resources department in the world. And in the financial area, at least, it performs very, very well. And all the senior managers of the state-owned banks, which are most of them, and the members of the board of directors are either appointed or at least approved 
by the organization department of the Communist Party. The third major aspect of China's political economy that leads to the hybrid bank situation is the power of the state, which is so often underestimated in the West. That China, the, the state, is a proactive uh, actor and is ready and willing on a very pragmatic basis, not ideological, to intervene in the economy in order to affect a more beneficial outcome. And this sometimes means distorting market signals, something which also Park Chung-hee did in uh, South Korea. The last two points that uh, I emphasize in the book, the first is the quest for stability, the overwhelming importance of stability to Chinese, which expressed in another way is avoidance of risk. Chinese fear above all luan, chaos, disorder. They've had enough of that for 150 years, culminating the Cultural Revolution, and they want what they call a harmonious society. Uh, it's not just a slogan, it reflects a deep sense of the Chinese that they like order, they like harmony, and this, of course, has ancient roots as well. But you see it all through the banks, the chief mandate for the boards of directors and the things we spent the most time on in our board meetings was how to control and manage risk, how to avoid risk. The last point I would, I would bring out is China's ability for strategic focus. This is something America at the national level doesn't do. We do it very well at the corporate level, but we don't do national strategy. China does. It devotes a tremendous amount of attention to developing national strategy. And once they commit to a set of policies and a strategy, be it in a five-year plan or in a third plenum reform resolutions, chances are they will implement those reforms. Not right away, not precipitously, but step by step, avoiding risks. This we see in the banks that we follow the strategic directions that are set down by the party and by the state, and that guides the directions in which the banks move. So that's the hybrid banking system, part market, consistent with, and in some cases surpasses global best practice. In other areas, it's very much got a socialist aspect to it. So one of the criticisms that you bring out of Chinese banks is that they can be seen as being too big and going too fast. What do you mean by that? The critics normally call them behemoths. which or is behemoths. <laughs> behemoths. <laughs> uh, depending on your pronunciation. But the, the criticism is too big and too, and too fast. Well, in fact, the Chinese banking market has an extraordinary array of different banking institutions. First of all, national commercial banks, they have 17. Uh, the United States also has a lot, but most countries don't have as many as 17 national level commercial banks, all competing very vigorously against each other. So uh, that, I think, refutes the idea that they're too big. But in addition to that, there are over 100 city banks, which some of them are of considerable size, and there are literally hundreds of local level banks with various different sorts of licenses and thousands of microfinance institutions that are licensed. So I think it's a misapprehension that it's this incredibly centralized uh, system. It's not. There's a great deal of variety and diversity in the system, and this has allowed them to be very successful in financial deepening, which is to bring financial services to almost everybody in the country. Too fast? Well, the economy's been growing very fast. 
the economy has been largely funded by the banks. That's the section that they have uh, emphasized to make it uh, work well. Uh, the alternative funding sources, such as the bond markets, the equity markets, are underdeveloped, immature, unstable. So banks have been responsible for funding this extraordinary economic growth. And to do that, they've had to grow fast. One of the sort of notable features of the Chinese banking system compared to, say, the American system is how well China seems to have been able to weather both the Asian financial crisis of the 90s and the shocks in 2008. What has made the Chinese system more insulated from those otherwise global shocks? Many reasons, but I'll just introduce two or three here. Uh, one is the word insulated is exactly right. It's a semi-closed economy. Uh, I don't want to overemphasize that. They have opened a lot of areas of the capital account over the last two decades. But nonetheless, they still have control over their own currency. And this helps to insulate them from external shocks. Second of all, the risk avoidance characteristic that I mentioned. Very few Chinese banks invested in the sort of securities that destroyed so many German Landesbanks, not to speak of American uh, financial institutions that invested in all these subprime uh, uh, shadow banking products, securitization products. The Chinese looked at them rather askance. It's not what the Chinese banking system is set out to do. The two crises you, you mentioned both had a, a major impact on China. The 1997 one, they saw what happened to the banking systems in other countries in Southeast Asia and Korea, and they realized we must have a robust, healthy, well-run banking system operating under a very good prudential regulatory authority. And that's when the whole banking reform really got going was in 1997, not when it was announced in the third plenary of 1993. The lesson from the 2008 crisis was we'd better be careful in emulating Wall Street and London banking models. What they have done to the nation is not what we expect our banks to do to our nation. And therefore, we need to take a rather more conservative approach towards the kind of risks that banks take. I suppose the irony is that a lot of foreign critiques of Chinese banks say it's very fragile and in some ways dysfunctional. You know. yes. So one, how do they frame Chinese banks as being fragile? And two, why is this not necessarily the case? I, I think two reasons. First of all, they, uh, they, they simply are not aware of the transformation that has occurred internally. And I, they're not entirely to blame for that because the truth is that the Chinese banks, like so many Chinese institutions, have not been open in explaining themselves, in uh, giving access to journalists, to investment analysts, to scholars. So they're, they're rather opaque, which is what has given me a unique opportunity to talk about them because I've been on the inside. But the second reason, I think, is that this concept of hybrid bank has not occurred to the critics. They don't realize that Chinese banks look in many ways, like they should act like commercial banks in the West, but they don't really, because they have to, they're owned by the state for the most part, they're guided by the party, and they serve the nation and the people. That may sound trite, but it makes a huge difference. The, the government has at its disposal the national balance sheet. So when a state-owned bank lends to a state-owned corporation, it's left pocket and right pocket. There's a lot of room for them to prevent uh, losses from occurring. 
Now, long term, the key will be to avoid uh, corporate uh, bankruptcies and defaults. The key has to lie in state-owned enterprise reform, and that will be the big question in my mind, is whether that will proceed over the next five years of Xi Jinping's second term, because if it will, it will greatly increase the efficiency and profitability of those SOE corporates, which will improve their cash flow. They'll be able to pay down some of the debt. They'll be able to service it. The second thing is, will they develop stable equity markets in which the SOEs will be able to uh, reduce their debt through issuing more equity? These are solvable problems. The question is, uh, is the political will there to accomplish them? And I guess not only is the political will from the top there, but there's a lot of people with a stake in maintaining SOEs in their current form. Uh, There indeed are, the vested interests. But I still think it comes down to the political will and the political power at the top to override those vested interests. And I think you see some signs through the anti-corruption campaign that uh, they have taken steps to do that in certain key industries already. Actually, what Zhu Rongji did to get the transformation of the Chinese banks started through essentially corporatization of the banks, having them all compete against each other, developing a financial government-owned financial holding company to be the majority shareholder. This, I think, can be an extraordinarily good model for how others, SOEs and other industries can be uh, reformed without privatizing. They've made it clear they're not going to privatize. But you don't necessarily have to privatize to radically improve the efficiency of SOEs. If they do that, you unleash a lot of economic growth potential. So China currently has a new head of the China Bank Regulatory Commission, the CBRC. So what are the challenges not only to the banking system, but to the financial system more broadly in China? The large banks are basically in good shape. There is concern about exposure to the uh, SOEs, but that's outside of the ability of the banks to solve. That requires the state council to undertake fundamental SOE reform in the next few years. Where I do have concern for the banks is in private sector lending, which they're doing a lot of now, and they don't have experience, training, expertise in this area. Uh, So this is the area where I would foresee NPOs actually will begin to rise in future years. Uh, Additionally, the uh, transformation of the banking system that I have described has been um, largely in the top tier national level banks, and to a certain extent among some of the best city banks. But some of the city banks still require a lot of improvement, and many of the local banks at lower levels down are still excessively uh, influenced by local governments and need to uh, uh, need some, some real reform. Looking beyond the banking system, then uh, shadow banking. Shadow banking is not a bad thing. It's a source of innovation. It's a source of uh, funding outside of the banking system, which every, every country needs. But uh, at this point, it needs to be brought under better regulation. And I believe this is happening now, step by step, perhaps not as quickly as we might desire, but I think it is happening and it's very important. Um, in addition, uh, is the need to uh, get the capital markets going. And that will be a huge challenge. China needs to be debanked, that is to say, reduce its, its dependence on the banking system for um, funding of the ec- economy. And that really means they need to develop a bond market that local governments can float long-term bonds in and uh, a equity market, cap- uh, securities market 
that an investor will feel comfortable to put his savings in and a company will feel he can reliably uh, raise equity. That I think will be, uh, not only is it very important for the next steps of China's financial development, but it'll be a difficult uh, thing for them to do. For the simple reason that for equity and bond markets to function effectively, the state cannot, to any significant degree, affect outcomes. It has to be hands-off. It has to allow the market to largely take care of itself with a little bit of nudging, perhaps, from government policy from time to time. My final question is there's a lot of talk at the moment about One Belt, One Road, um, and there's a lot of talk about Chinese banks lending, so not only within China, but abroad, for so these huge infrastructure projects, um, a lot of lending to foreign governments, you know, everything from oil pipelines to there's a new high-speed rail between Budapest and Belgrade. On the face of it, it seems like that railway, for example, doesn't have very much potential to give instant returns or actually do very much to China and its national interests. Does lending so broadly outside of China maybe open up these Chinese banks to increased risk that they are otherwise trying to avoid? I think the answer is clearly yes. The problem for a Chinese banker is he's got to avoid risk and make money on the bottom line for shareholders and support national growth goals. That was much easier to reconcile when the growth goals were domestic because of the power of the state. Uh, if it supports a high-speed railway between, say, Guilin and Wuhan, ultimately it's probably going to get paid back. Between Budapest and Belgrade, I would think that would be more problematic. So how that will play out, I don't know, but clearly the One Belt, One Road is top priority for the Chinese government now. And therefore, under the socialist aspect of being a hybrid bank, there's strong pressure to support those initiatives, particularly on the, on the four large banks, I would think, which are the ones that are expected to go outside more. I think for the, the middle-level tier, the middle-tier banks, and certainly down below the city banks, this will be less of a problem. James, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast, now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. 